I uh, make it a habit when I go to people's places to never contradict the host. So I'm not going to contradict this host. I'm just going to elaborate on what he said. I would like to hear what you think about what I said, okay? Uh, you don't just have to ask me a question. I really do want to hear it. You hear various things from people about trade unions. And I was raised in a right-wing family. My father thought the trade unions were directly in a league with the devil. Uh, and I'm not doing him an injustice when I say that. Ernest Manning, who brought in Alberta's labor laws in the late 40s, thought that, uh, that trade unions were part of a conspiracy between Jews, bankers, and communists. And there was a lengthy article written on that. So I want to hear what you have to think. Thank you. Hi, Winston. My, <clears throat> my name is Henning Mundell. And uh, I appreciated your overview of the labor movement, especially in Alberta, and some of the key stepping stones along the way. One thing I wonder if you could maybe address briefly is an aspect that gets lost too much, and that is the aspect of how negotiation was done, is done, should be done, who with whom, and let me just give the one example. Uh, having spent about 30 years at the research station, the public, uh, I wasn't a member of the Public Service Alliance. I was a member of the Professional Institute of the Public Service. But the P Public Service Alliance periodically went on strike. They did not have a beef with the management of the research station. Their beef was with a deputy minister in Ottawa or a minister, the government. But the strike was local. To me, that is completely removed from way industrial action was conceived and originally dealt with. And can you think of a more effective way of dealing with the people that you have the beef with? Oh, that's really good. Yeah, there's so much that could be said about that because, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, so the reporter from the Lethbridge Herald asked me a question very much like that. You know, how trade unions operated back then very much like the Occupy movement today. And that's exactly it. When workers assembled, and up until 1872 in Canada, uh, to assemble and to form an association for the purpose of negotiating with the employer, what it was seen as a conspiracy, a criminal conspiracy in restraint of trade. You know, so when workers assembled, well, and started to demand things, it was pretty well all-out war. You know, all the gloves were off. You dare not turn back once you decided to make that step. And that's exactly how uh, uh, negotiations took place. You had to almost always go on strike just to be recognized by the employer. Then when you came back to the employer, you'd often have to go on strike just to get the employer back to the table. Now, what happened in 1944 was that, in a sense... That agreement, that PC Order 1003 that William Lyon Mackenzie came, came down with that later morphed into the laws in Alberta and across Canada and federally, that imposed a certain kind of structure on collective bargaining. And it gave unions some of the things that they were asking for. The right that once the majority of workers want a union that they have, you know, that they can go through a process and be recognized and thereafter the employer has to recognize them and has to bargain in good faith. 
Okay? That was what we kind of gained from that also, that nobody could be uh, discriminated against by purpose for the reasons that they exercised their rights under the Act. On the other side, what the employers got was what they wanted, industrial peace. In fact, unions have a peace obligation. In 1978, Jean-Claude Perrault, the leader of the postal workers, went to jail not because he told his workers to stay on strike after a back-to-work order, but because he refused to mount a podium and tell them to go back to work. And he went to jail for a few days because of that. Uh, so the, on the employer side, they got the, the, the uh, promise of labor peace. They, the, it became illegal for a union to uh, go on strike during the term of a collective agreement and a whole number of other things. And it also imposed the idea that uh, the employer could only bargain with the bargaining agent. You couldn't bargain with the workers. Two years later, a fellow by the name of Justice Rand came down with a decision that said that where a collective agreement is signed, where a union is certified a collective agreement is signed, the individual workers cease to exist for the purposes of contract negotiations. Anything having to do with terms and conditions of employment, you talk to the bargaining agent. Now when you get to a large union like yours, with headquarters way over there in Ottawa or wherever, yeah, I think it's in Ottawa, Public Service Alliance of Canada, PIPS, well then suddenly it removes everything from the locus, from the focus of the of the grievance, of the problem. Workers before would sit down and, you know, they would down tools quite often. The grievance was settled. But it was a grievance with that particular management. In this case, your employer was, uh, you know, the Government of Canada or the, the Treasury Board, and you would have to negotiate with the employer. The framework for collective agreement that was laid down in '44 that unions have kind of more or less implicitly agreed to, and why wouldn't they? Because the years thereafter, as you know, up until about 1975, were good years in Canada. These were the golden years. Workers were benefiting from the deals with the employers, you know, in the same way that workers in the British Isles benefited from British imperialism. You know, they were the benefactors. They, they, they wouldn't speak out against it. And trade unions went along with it. It's only when the mid-'70s came and Pierre Trudeau announced wage and price controls, which meant pretty well exclusively wage controls, uh, that, were, that the system began to break down and people began to see the problem. But we often run into that thing where you, the contract, and it's a strict contract, is between the employer and the bargaining agent, and workers feel left out of it. I think it's a weakness of our movement, frankly, and I think you put your finger right on it. Having said that, somebody once said, you know, uh, what's the saying? It's the worst possible kind of arrangement, except there isn't a better one. You know, something like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hi, Winston. Uh, Mark Sandylands here. Um, thank you for coming down and, and bringing that uh, presentation. It was very it brought, brought many uh, many things to my mind. One of them is is the uh, words to a song. I, I, I'm sure you'll know the melody. It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Yeah. Now we stand outside and hungry. 
You yeah. have the Wonsters, you know. Now we stand out yeah. cast and starving right. midst the wonders we have made, but the union makes us yeah. strong. Um, in, in my own life, uh, I've been affected by, by uh, labor uh, unfairness. My, my mother uh, worked for the Hudson's Bay Company in the 1930s, and she and my father uh, married in 1937, but, but didn't tell anybody because the Hudson's Bay Company had a rule that uh, married women were not allowed to work for them. So uh, about a year after they, they had been married, her boss found out and, and said, and I, I apologize for the uh, rough language, but he said to her, you little bitch, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you got married uh, in secret and fired her. Yeah. And in the 1950s, uh, my father uh, worked for uh, Prudhomme Lumber. Uh, Prudhomme was a well-known liberal in Edmonton. And some of the conditions were not uh, all that fair to, to some of the workers, and my father tried to start a union and was fired for that Yeah, in the 50s. So uh, the union makes us strong. Thanks for that, Mark. And it's amazing for, how, for what a long period of Canadian history and Alberta history, if you were a woman, it was better to be a widow or a spinster than it was to be married. You know, like, for instance, when the right to vote was extended, it was extended to widows and spinsters, but not to married. Your husband will vote for you. Quite often when I canvass for a party that I'm not supposed to talk about, the woman will come to the door and say, well, I'll have to talk to my husband about that. So we're not over that one yet, you know. And, and isn't it ironic that, that, you know, during the Industrial Revolution in England, the period of Victorian rule up until, you know, especially at the time of the the Jubilee, Queen Victoria's Jubilee in 1899, that women, that was the period of time during which this myth of womanhood was elevated, you know, and the myth of childhood. And that was the time when women were treated the worst probably in history. It was during the English Industrial Revolution. Thank, yeah, thanks, thanks. I mean, we could talk a lot about the history of women and the work that they did. The Hudson Bay Company and the Northwest Company would come out and set up their trading posts and they would leave the, many of them would leave their wives in England and uh, take country wives here in the here uh, here in Alberta, uh, Aboriginal people. We have pictures of the country wives, particularly after a whole bunch of factors went or workers went back to England to their real wives, uh, the wives who dressed up like Queen Victoria, and they uh, and these uh, country wives would really have a hard time of it after their men left, you know. Hello, my, my name is Frank J. Toth. I think you, you people have 10 minutes recording of mine. Yeah, we do, yes. Thank bless you. you, bless you for coming. I don't coming. think I interviewed you. Somebody else did. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. We spent a half an hour. But anyway, uh, my life began uh, quite in the Depression. We didn't have no even siding on the house, old mine shack. But anyway, we went through some rough times. And uh, uh, medically, I was—I failed to be able to write my 11 and 12 exams. I had a, a eye disease that uh, almost made me blind. For eight months in the hospital before I discovered, they just removed my tonsils. I was okay. So I was too proud to go back. And my daddy said, "Son, he said you've been a gem, gem student. You're, you're working three side jobs already at your age." But he said, if you want me to give you a permit to go coal mining, he said, I'll get a permit. I said, just hold on, Dad. So I hugged the old coal heater. 
and hauled in the, the wood and the coal and milked the cows and fed the chickens. Drove 30 cows up the hill a dollar apiece. Anyway, it just so happened I finally said, go ahead, Dad. So he got me a, a, a permit. We happened to work in a mine that had been closed for eight years. When the great Second World War started... Down oh, here in the valley? No, in Drumheller Valley, a little town of Wayne. It was closed for eight years, and everything was caved in. 24-inch prop timbers were squashed to nothing. And that's where I started. Crawled in three, 400 feet to the, to the working place. Dad would take his coal oil carbide lamp off and go like this and go all over. Instant death. I didn't know any better. Yeah. Anyway, I got hurt twice. Joined the Air Force. I come back. I went back coal mining with Dad. And, and uh, it, it so happened it was a little coal mine on the way to the Atlas Mine in East Cooley where the owner's owner, owner father had bought him a mine. Mine resigned. He'd have to buy me a pick and shovel and a, coal, a, a carbide lamp. <laughs> it so happened that the, there was an election of, for the pit committee grievance. And most of the people were European and couldn't speak. So guess what? I got roped in yeah, yeah. as a, a pit committee, a grievance man. Well, I was fired at least 50 times by management <laughs> because Premier Manning had brought in Code 90. It was illegal to strike. Anyway, I'd like to, then I'll shorten it. But we got old fellows' jobs back. They'd already hired 22, 20 year friends of the boss uh, in their jobs. And uh, we got their jobs back every time. I was fired. My dad's fired if he comes back, you know. Oh, yeah. But I went through something that uh, I could have gone to university, I think, 50 years. Never learned what That's man will do to man. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we got married and came to Lethbridge. And I researched and researched. And my God, this place always got 10 cents a ton of coal less than we did in the Drumheller Valley. But I, I, I found that most of the labor laws that he evolved in Canada came from these people right here. That's right. So it bothered me to the extent I started working on the, uh, on the uh, present mayor and the next mayor and the, today's mayor on recognizing the mine. Mm -hmm. The new council was good enough to, to go adopt the United Nations uh, laws for anti-discrimination but they still today are anti-social discriminating against the, the coal miners. There is no official recognition. So between my research part, my wife and I, two and a half years, we've organized, we've designed a flag, and there's 15 communities in three western provinces flying the miners' flag. Three pounds with a huge mine, yes. miner, okay? Everybody's flying it. But Ladbridge, as they used to say, the miners, okay? Tabor, yeah. Champion, Crow's Nest Pass, Drumheller, from Estevan to Trail, they're flying the miners' flag. Your question? Your uh, question. Yeah, okay. I'll cut, I'll cut it short. To this day, this social discrimination goes on. Yeah. We're still battling. So with your presence here, my God, I, I believe I died. <laughs> God to heaven, listen to your voice. The, the, the anti-union blast is still going on everywhere, not realizing that these are the people who made your regulations. Bless you and come back tomorrow again. Thank you. And it's not just me. It's the group here in Lethbridge. There's a very active group that I met with last night. 
They are the ones working on it. Wendy attended that meeting last night from the Galt Museum. There's a group under the Labor Council. They're going to keep going. So make sure you're at the function on May the 5th, eh? Yeah. Good afternoon, sir. My name is Balbura, and I really appreciate your short lesson in uh, uh, the labor movement in, in Alberta and Canada. Speaking of labor, as we sit here and speak, there are millions of workers who still work without any union, without any clock, around the clock, from sunset to sunrise, or vice versa, and even child labor mm -hmm. uh, from the age of eight and up. Yep. So my question here is, actually, I'm just going to give you a little bit of what I read this morning. It's to do with Alberta labor. Uh, Agriculture Minister has a statement in Lethbridge Hall today. You can go home and read it that, uh, you know, we don't want to unduly burden our farmers with the uh, safety laws and all that stuff. Now, where are we? This is 2012. Why are the farm workers not covered by WCB? And why are they not covered by occupational health and safety? People lose their limbs. People lose their lives. They're electrocuted. Are they not part of this society? Yeah. We have a long way to go. As a society, as a community, and a, and a country where we can say that, yes, we have achieved something. Thank you. Yeah. And I would uh, ask you people not to let that slip by in the next election. We had the leader of one of the parties say that when a few of us started kicking up a fuss about temporary foreign workers, which is a federal program, by the way, that the province is saddled with, uh, you know, that they don't want temp uh, anything other than temporary foreign workers now in the coffee shops because they don't want to pay $6 a cup of coffee, you know. So this means that the exploitation of those workers, they want to come to Canada, but just because they're desperate and want to work doesn't mean that they should be open to a discriminatory set of practices, which they are. Hello, my name is Tom Kane, and I would like to um, have you look at, to the future building on your history. Um, the last couple of paragraphs in the booklet on page 22 say that you know, unions went, uh, are more than just a means to protect the narrow interests of specific groups of workers. And then the Alberta Federation of Labor has proven to be an essential part of a movement that's focused on broader ideals and principles to struggle, sacrifice, and build a better world for themselves and their children. Uh, a number of us in the environmental movement are wondering is there going to be a future? Yeah. You know, so struggling for the future is kind of a mute point if we don't get our act together around that. Yeah. Do you think that there's a future for green jobs in Alberta? And I don't know what kind of union activity there is in the tar sands. And how would you educate the union to, uh, to become interested in green jobs which would give them good wages and also... Uh, provide a better future for their children than the tar sands. Thanks. Yeah, uh, unions have a lot of work to do there for several years. And after I finish this project, I'm going back to the sustainable development movement where I worked internationally for quite a few years. I sat on a board in Madrid and a board in Amsterdam until this last year. I quit so I can devote full time to this for a while. But our message to trade unions was you have to take that step. You have to talk to your employers and to the community about what can be done at the point of production to make production and consumption more sustainable. Uh, 
which of course are the two pillars of Agenda 21. You know, because if we don't, then there is no future. You know, to any time people juxtapose and, you know, make it sound like the environment and economics are on opposite sides of the poles, it makes me so angry because, of course, that's not true at all. And even, I mean, I was proud to be part of a gateway party, University of Alberta Gateway. I was a news editor. I mean, uh, and uh, I got to speak for the 1970s class. Peter Lougheed spoke for the class of the 1950s. And in his speech, he criticized this government not for allowing development in the tar sands, but for going about it the way they did. And he, you know, and he said that they basically aren't giving enough attention to the environment. A few days later, the MP in my constituency, Linda Duncan, said almost the same thing and was roundly criticized as being anti-development. The nice thing about the sustainable development movement, it said, is that you have to pay attention to the economics. Otherwise, you're flying a utopian kite if you talk about the environment. So anyway, yes, that's just the point. Unions have to do that. They have to adopt that struggle. In the California Federation of Labor, where I'm going next year, there are several places where they've asked me to provide some advice on that very thing because that's where I spent a lot of time. In fact, I'm kind of sorry I came back to Alberta, except it's worth it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you so much for your talk. Very, I really enjoyed the history going back 100 years. I'm the NDP candidate for Little Bow, and when you were, I had just finished telling my t table that in my door knocking, <clears throat> I often had the flyer to the lady of the house, and she'll tell me, oh, I'll give it to my husband, and he'll tell me how to vote. <laughs> so my table was really cracking up <laughs> when you said your piece. Um, what I'd like to know is, if we were the hotbed of radicalism here and, and helping to start the labor movement, uh, what happened to Alberta? What, what changed it? How did we get from there to here? Yeah, isn't it amazing? I don't know. I've, done, I've written papers on this, but even then I was afraid to admit the, at the end I still don't know. Okay. Does anyone have an idea about that? What did happen? It's a mystery to me. Uh, I know that we elected a progressive government in 1921 with the United Farmers of Alberta. I know that the CCF, the precursor to the NDP, began in Calgary in 1932 before they went to Regina to sign the manifesto. I know that all kinds of movements were centered here, especially around Lethbridge, Drumheller, even as far north as Calgary. Edmonton was hardly on the map. And now, today, the conventional wisdom is that there's very little room for the kind of discussion that needs to take place. I don't understand it. Was it related yeah. to oil being discovered? Yeah, we problems? got very rich, I guess. Eh? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the oil gusher, Leduc number one. It's amazing how they discovered these oil wells in Turner Valley. And they were so disgusted when the oil and natural gas turned up because they were drilling for water for the locomotives. <laughs> they were. <laughs> and my name is Van Christou, and I'd like to thank you very much for bringing to our attention the lack of attention to the working people in our history. I went through the school system here in Lethbridge and we heard very little about, about uh, the people who really made this country. Uh, you know, we'd hear, hear about uh, the Industrial Revolution in, in Britain. We knew all the people that did everything in that. We knew nothing about what was going on here. Yeah. Um, 
in your comments, you used the word war that's prevailed between the the people who control our, our, corporate, our corporate world and, and, and the working person. Uh, this war has been raging for a long time. And my question is, do you see, and maybe I'll preface that just before I ask the question, with what's happening south of the border, and when I hear some of the uh, people who are running for the presidency of the United States at the present time, who are are bound on on union busting, that's their that that's the foundation of their of, of their thought is how they're going to get ahead. Uh, when you, when we're so much influenced by what goes on from south of the border, do you see the trend here as being a favorable one or not? Yeah, yeah, that's a big question, obviously. In the United States, they are fighting back against that, and it's no mistake, I don't think, that the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party is having such a hard time of it. Last week in Jasper, I just reminded my students that a newt is not a reptile. It's an amphibian. Okay. 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 I can only say that, you know, having, as you can guess, I, I have leaned from time to time towards the NDP, but, uh, and I've done a lot of canvassing. I've done a lot of organizing for trade unions, and I was an education officer for, for the trade union movement for years before I went over the wall and sought the safety of the university. <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, it's always been my experience that people in Alberta are not unfriendly to the message. It's just when the message is put in a certain way. I really do think that messaging is important. The Alberta Union of Provincial Employees reached a low, and I'll just use this one case in point, when Ralph Klein imposed his 20% across-the-board cuts on education, social services, and health care. And the laundry workers in Calgary, uh, two years later, made him blink when they went out and strike. And these were the lowest-paid workers, okay? Uh, the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees, who I worked for then as the PR officer, went from about 55,000 members down to 41,000 members in the space of just a very short while. And they were kind of in trouble. They had just bought a building, and they had to pay that off. And I can remember we were in desperate days. Today, the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees is at 80,000 members. And these are not government employees. These are people working in nursing homes and places like that who have organized when a union decides that it's going to organize and do it properly, they don't meet unfriendly folk at all. Down here in Tabor, Warner, or wherever, the places we're supposed to be scared of, you know, that's not the case at all. Even in Little Bow, wherever that person is sitting. <laughs> and so, yes, I believe that we just too often point to the people that we should be organizing and educating as the reason why we're doing neither. You know, apathy is a favorite excuse of trade union leaders when people don't show up to meetings. I say, well, what have you done? Why should they show up to your meeting? Do you think anyone wants to sit there and hear minutes being read? I don't. <laughs> Go ahead. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. My name is Frances Schultz, and I want to go back to some of the issues that you mentioned about how women were treated and, and to talk particularly about teachers in Alberta. Uh, in the early history of teachers in Alberta, um, you're right. 
if you stayed to be a spinster, spinster, you could keep teaching. But if you got married, I didn't know let alone had children, uh, you, you couldn't teach anymore. And um, a personal experience that, was ha- that happened to me in 1959 in Edmonton was that one of my fellow teachers, a man who had been in the RCAF during the war, who at that time was not sent overseas but was used to teach um, the, the fellow, fellow officers, etc., in the RCAF, went to retire. He found out that because he had not been sent overseas, he was being treated like women were being treated all the time at that time in, when they retired. Because if you stopped teaching and were raising a family, um, you lost your pension benefits that you had acquired before you, ha- you, you, you stopped teaching. You only got paid pension benefits on the years that you taught after you came back. He got treated exactly the same way as women, and he was outraged. And and so things have changed. But in reality, um, some some of the institutions themselves have a lot to answer for in how women were treated even in an organization that was supposed to be uh, helping them and supporting them. And I think it's important that we remember, uh, because, yeah, yeah, I know, Bev, you get a lot of women that say, oh, well, my husband will tell me how to vote. I don't need to know anything. And it makes me angry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, It's amazing how veterans are treated, too. The ones who are right at the head of the uh, general strike movement that broke out in Winnipeg in 1919, in spite of the fact that it was supposed to take place first in Edmonton and Calgary, were the veterans who had returned from the First World War. Because they had discovered that these politicians, who during the war were glorifying them, and war should never be glorified, pinning medals on their chests, suddenly forgot about them when they came back. And lo and behold, that story isn't still carried on. It's amazing how it took until 1929 for women to be recognized as persons. You weren't a person until 1929, according to the law. You couldn't have a seat in the Senate because you weren't a person. And had it not been for the fact that Canada was still under British rule, in a sense, the Privy Council was the final avenue of appeal in England, they still wouldn't be persons probably because the Supreme Court of Canada agreed that they were not persons. So then Parle B. and McClung and her people uh, took the case to England and the lords sitting there in their red robes, Conrad Black was one of them for a while, (laughs) decided that, yes, women shall be deemed to be persons, okay? He's, I, I (laughs) I hope the state of Florida is treating him well. My name is Knut Peterson. Uh, thanks very much for coming down. Uh, we spoke a little bit about Workmen's Compensation Board and temporary foreign workers not being covered. There's another group, although shrinking group, I think, in Alberta that is not covered, which is farm workers. Yeah. Have you been involved with uh, any of the uh, 
whatever you want to call it, lobbying to have them included? Sure. The United Food and Commercial Workers uh, have, has made it a major campaign, and so is the Federation of Labor. And I must remind you that though the Alberta Federation of Labor is sponsoring me, I'm not an employee of the Alberta Federation of Labor. I point that out regularly to the president. But, uh, you know, really, we have been after them for a long time because the definition of agricultural employee includes anybody who's working on that kind of enterprise. So when you go up north to Edmonton, and you should do it sometimes, it's a beautiful city, you, uh, you pass by a place uh, past Calgary where there's mushroom factories, huge mushroom factories. That's deemed to be an agricultural uh, enterprise. Therefore, those are agricultural workers, and they don't have the right to belong to a union. UFCW signed them up 100%, and they were turned back by the Labor Relations Board because they fall under the definition. So there's all kinds of people who are not covered. And workers' compensation is the very least thing that they should be covered with because, look, you know, I mean, even if your employer is not forced to look after your health and safety, at the very least you should be given a pension if you happen to get injured or diseased because of the work. Thank you, Winston. It's, it's uh, not uncommon in life to find the cleavage between what people say and what they do. It surprises me, however, in the labor movement that there is a significant cleavage between what the leadership of the unions say and do, especially in relation to the NDP party, and contributions that are made, and substantial financial contributions are made to that party, I understand. There's a substantial cleavage between what the, the leadership of the union says and does, and the membership that can't go fast enough in election to the conservative box to drop at their ballot. And uh, this seems to me to be uh, inexplicable. I, I can't deal with it myself. I haven't over the years. Can you help me out? Well, sure. Sure. I mean, uh, it's amazing. Just this morning when I was putting this presentation together in the Starbucks shop here down the road, I uh, heard my fellow workers talking. And these were working people. And, you know, they're clearly not going to not only vote NDP, but they're going to see the good things of life very much like the television sets. You know, um, I tell them to. I criticize the trade unions and the leadership, too. I was fired once in my life, and it was by a trade union president, you know? And that was the roughest period in my life. I, I lost my family. I lost all my money in that period. And I went down to live with the Aboriginal people in New Mexico for quite a period of time as a result of that. It was, I had no love in my heart for the trade union leader who fired me, okay? But it's just the case that this form of collective bargaining we have I mean, I could go through all kinds of explanations. Many, many trade union leaders not even talk directly to their members. You walk into a construction trade union hiring hall, and the chances are if you're a member, you'll talk to your dispatcher through a wicket. You know? Trade union should be part of a movement. It's the movement that gave rise to it. And if it were a movement, and wherever it's a movement, they do convince their members that they should think a little bit before they go to the ballot box. There's some unions that do that more than others, okay? Uh, in, in other cases, they don't do that at all. Then unions tie their hands. 
Unions are not allowed to give money to a political party because members object to it. In 1995 or 7, a famous Supreme Court case, the Levine case, against the Ontario Public Service Employee Union, the Supreme Court judges where the guy objected that his money was being given to the NDP, a tiny portion of his dues, went to the Ontario Federation of Labour, and then off that a fairly small contribution was made to the NDP. He objected to that, and he took his fight all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court justices there gave one of the strongest arguments, saying that a trade union did then not get actively involved in politics, was failing to represent its members. Because with a stroke of a pen, a government can wipe out gains that that trade union fought for over the years. And we've seen many bits of evidence about that. Um, I've talked to trade union members about the NDP, they're not unfriendly. It's just they honestly haven't been approached properly. It's not. Trade unions haven't done their job. What else can I say? <laughs> I was hoping that you'd have more of an answer to your own question. I've been told that people who ask a question usually have an answer in mind. <laughs> well, with that, uh, that's our last uh, questioner. And... Uh so I'd like to thank you, Winston, for coming down today and thank you. giving us this history lesson. It was very enlightening. So thank you very thank much. Thank you.